Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Maispink. We're at White Walnut in Dundee. It's August 4th, 2021. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, first question, biggest question to get you started sure. is why wine? Ooh, uh, well, I didn't grow up in a house that uh, uh, produced, grew, or, or really consumed wine for that matter. I grew up on the East Coast in Delaware and Maryland. And, uh, Went to a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. Um, and this was a time, you know, really before internet, before cell phones. Uh, and during the fall of, of uh, each, each year, um, I worked in a little wine shop uh, just off of campus. Liquor and, and wine were sold in the same stores and then beer was sold in grocery stores and gas stations, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, if you were interested in a bottle of wine, you, you didn't Google it or, or look for a score or look for a shelf talker. You took the bottle home and pulled the cork and, and tried it. Um, so I, I was doing that uh, at the end of each shift, um, perhaps maybe even too much. I mean, <laughs> most pay periods I owed the shop money versus getting a check. But I was really just enjoying exploring wines of the world. and. You know, for me at that point in time, um, that meant five, six, seven dollar bottles. But um, it was a kid in a candy store, you know, just taking different varietals home, exploring different regions, seeing what resonated with me, cooking some food. Um, So was just enjoying learning about wine. And then the spring of of each year of undergrad, I studied abroad. Uh, So my freshman year, I was at the University of the West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, my sophomore year, <clears throat> I was at University of Cape Town in South Africa in Witz and Joburg. Then my junior year uh, was in Guatemala and Belize. And then my senior year was in Chile. And you know, whether I was first world or third world on campus or off um, in the field or, or in the city, it seemed like all days ended the same. You, you had a bite of food and sat down with something to drink and you know it can be around a campfire with a chunk of bread and a beer or it could be a white tablecloth and a nice meal and really just enjoyed the cultural influence of mm-hmm. uh, food and beverage on people's lives um, so uh, senior year spring got back from from Chile and was on campus and graduation was looming closer and uh, the question became, what am I going to do after college? And I, I really hadn't given it much thought uh, during during my time in school. I had studied culture, anthropology, and business management and theology, so I had no career track to mind. It was just kind of pursuing things I was interested in and uh, being a sponge and soaking mm-hmm. soaking up life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so graduation was literally a few weeks off, and uh, I was like, well, I guess I need to figure out what I'm going to do after this. Sat down one night with a bottle of wine from the shop and um, just kind of asked that most basic question in life. If I could do anything with the rest of my days, what would I do? Um, and I was a pretty avid downhill skier, really enjoyed fly fishing, really enjoyed wine and, and uh, exploring it. Um, 
So I was just kind of pondering what I was going to do and seemed like uh, one of those three were the things I was most passionate about and I should try and turn one of them into a career somehow. Um, so I thought about continuing you know, skiing and, and uh, being a ski guide, but didn't know what I'd do during the summer months. Uh, thought about being a fly fishing guide, but thought I might get burned out on fishing if I had to produce fish for other people. So I was like, well, why? Maybe that. Maybe that. Um, so I went up to the library on campus. At the time, there were three graduate programs in the country. Found that out. Um, Cornell, UC Davis, Oregon State. I was ready to leave upstate New York, so I wasn't going to be Cornell. Um, I flew out, looked at UC Davis, looked at Oregon State, and was in Corvallis looking at Oregon State and uh, had dinner on the Willamette River there and uh, could see snow-capped mountains in the background and saw a big salmon roll in the river. And I was like, wait a minute, I can ski an hour from campus. I can fish right here and get a graduate degree. Maybe that's what I'll do. So I went back, walked to graduation, um, packed up everything in a U-Haul, drove out uh, right after graduation and uh, went up to uh, campus. And I guess that was late July of 2000. And uh, made an appointment with, with uh, one of the professors on campus and let him know that I was interested in attending graduate school in the fall. And uh, <laughs> they asked how long I was out visiting for, what schools I was visiting. And <laughs> like, no, I just, I just moved here. I want to start in the fall. And they're like, well, you haven't applied. And I was like, yeah, but that's, that's what I want to do. And I'm like, well, this is unusual. <laughs> uh, but let's figure it out. So I started in the fall. And um, yeah, and had to do a bunch of post-back work because of my... Uh, social sciences background, um, but was doing post-bac stuff and grad stuff at the same time and been doing it for, I guess, a little over 20 years now. When you started working at the wine shop at first, was there a, a reason? Was it just a job at the time or were you interested in wine before you started that work? I mean, I think like a lot of undergraduate students, I was interested in, in alcohol consumption, uh, but I was burned out on the bar scene. Um, most of the guys that I hung out with were older and they had all graduated. So um, I didn't want to go to the bars anymore and uh, wanted to earn some money and do it in a way uh, where I still got a chance to learn something. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't go into it uh, wanting to learn about wine, but the guy that owned the shop uh, proved to become a great friend and um, we kind of learned about wine together and uh, or he taught me about wine and and I learned from him mm -hmm. and um, but more than anything you know I just I really really enjoyed taking bottles home pulling corks out turning on a documentary cooking a great dinner and um, you know, there were ample bottles that got poured out, but there were some that uh, I still remember to this day, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of learning, learning on the job and learning from, from a mentor like that. Tell me about that process of learning wine, because obviously there's a lot to learn. So what was it about wine that you enjoyed learning and, and what, what were the kind of things that stuck with you as you, were, as you were kind of developing that sense of wine? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I, I I've never found another product uh, that is a bridge to so many things in life. Um, you know, it's a bridge to 
other cultures, it's a bridge across languages. It's a bridge across time. It's a bridge across continents. Um, I mean, it, it really is just so unique. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether whether you're you're visiting a winery that you've followed for years and continuing to connect with one parcel of land that's really resonated with you, or whether you're in some some country that you've never been to before and trying to learn about the culture, the people, the place, there's no better way to do it than through food and beverage and, and, or art uh, in, in my experience. So, um, you know, to have something as powerful as wine that's a bridge in that way, but it's also a consumable product, uh, something that you get to ingest, uh, you know, it's just so unique. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but uh, it's just proven to be such a, a unique uh, way for me to meet people, connect with people, see the world through different lenses, um, go back in time even. I mean, I, I'll drink a bottle from my birth year on my, on my birthday some years and see what it was like, you know, uh, decades ago at a certain, certain region in the world. Uh, it, it's just so fun. Mm -hmm. It's just so fun. And, you know, every week we get people that come through the tasting room here that never met, never had a conversation before with, and um, people that you end up feeling like you've known for, for years and years and years, just because of the connections that wine can, um, can afford. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you moved out here to Oregon State. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about your sort of initial impressions of the area and, and of, of getting started in that program. What, you, you had a background in wine, but not in winemaking. So I'm curious what that was like as you were getting into the, the program. Yeah, I mean, I, I had made a little bit of uh, wine and beer uh, in undergraduate starting, um, I don't recall if it was my sophomore junior year. I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah, it was. It was my sophomore year I started making a little bit of wine and um, my, my first wine, I, I got a, a Zinfandel juice shipped from California and it was, it was a concentrate, so it was more like syrup, uh, shipped to me in New York. And uh, the idea was I was gonna make a red Zin and uh, I had just a, a crappy little apartment uh, in undergraduate with linoleum floors and I was just gonna do it in the kitchen and a couple carboys. So I take this bag out of a box of concentrate and dropped it and spilled it on the linoleum. So there's this really slow moving blob of just red, dark red slime moving across the floor. And it's like, oh my God, what can I salvage here? So I managed to get the bag up before it all spilled. Um, and the ratios then were askew of concentrate to, to water. Uh, but I ended up making a white Zinfandel uh, because of how much concentrate I had left over. And then that year for Christmas, I, I bottled it and made labels and gave it to family and friends. And it happened to be a, an era when white Zinfandel was popular, so it worked out. Um, but people really liked it. And, and uh, some of the comments and compliments seemed actually genuine, that mm -hmm. like, this, this is actually really good. And that might have just been a function of how low the bar was for white <laughs> Zinfandel in general, but uh, people enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, you should, you, should, you should do this some more. Mm -hmm. So I started getting some juice from the Finger Lake uh, region, Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, 
made some Riesling and, you know, kind of snowballed from there into mm -hmm. beer and some other things. Mm -hmm. So th there was a little bit of a, of a background mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in fermentation before I, I ventured out this way. But, um, you know, when I got here, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't characterize uh, the Oregon wine scene as a commercial industry uh, in 99, 2000. Um, I would say it was an in-state fledgling industry, but it wasn't a global or, or national, in my estimation, uh, industry. So, you know, it was a cool time to show up for sure. Um, to see something so young mm -hmm. uh, where you felt like you could, it's still malleable and you could still be a part of directing it in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think in comparison to other wine regions of the world, it still is that way, right? Uh, but especially back then, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. there was just so much energy and uh, unexplored vineyards and land and techniques and clonal material and technology and methodologies and farming and crop estimation, just so many things. and. Um, yeah, it was a really, really fun time to come into the industry for sure. And the people that I worked with back then are, are lifelong friends and, mm -hmm. you know, are all kind of, uh, well rooted in the industry now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me about the, the Oregon, the Oregon State experience then for you, it's still, still pretty early on in its experience as a, as a graduate program at this level. Yeah. Tell me about what you what the classes were like and what the experience was like for you as you were going through it uh, it was rough uh, I mean coming from a, a small liberal arts education where I was studying abroad a lot writing independent studies um, you know kind of following organically the things that I was curious about and curious in uh, in very small intimate classroom settings typically ending up at professors' homes to have drinks after school, you know? To go into Oregon State and having to do post-bac work uh, in lecture halls of 400, I mean, it, that that was more culture shock than any of the traveling I had done uh, for undergrad. Um, and I was also in a weird situation uh, in terms of funding where I didn't have residency in-state and there really wasn't funding for post-bac stuff. I'm debt diverse, so um, I was working 40 plus hours a week while doing post back end graduate stuff. Um, and that meant uh, working in a lab of one of my professors, working at a small winery outside of Corvallis, and then working in the kitchen on campus uh, cooking food for um, catering events. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So I'd show up to class and like, my chef whites covered in mustard uh, with kids, uh, you know, at a different point in life than myself. And um, so I guess, you know, needless to say, it was recipe for burnout mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to try and work that much and go to school. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't know a single person in the state of Oregon when I moved here. Um, I hadn't applied to the program. I hadn't been accepted to the program. Uh, so I was all in. Um, and doing it the only way that I knew how. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have any connections or anything. Um, so I did that for 
I guess I did that in about seven, eight months until spring break uh, of uh, the first spring semester. And at that point, it was just burnout. It was like, I, you know, this is what I want to do, but I got to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, you know, most wineries didn't have websites or, or ways to contact them via email. Um, so I knew it was what I wanted to do. I just wasn't, I wasn't doing it the way that I wanted to do it. Um, so a friend of mine lived down in San Francisco from undergraduate, was going to take a road trip down to visit him. And it's like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm going back after spring break to school, uh, but I know this is what I want to do. So I updated my resume, uh, sent it via fax uh, to every uh, winery in the state of Oregon, uh, of which, you know, at that point, it was a fraction of what it is now. And then um, got in the car and took a road trip and uh, went down to see him. It's like, I don't, I don't know what's next, but I uh, figured it out. And some, I don't remember how many days in the trip, four, five, six, something like that. Um, I finally had a cell phone at that point and uh, yeah, started getting a couple phone calls of people that said, hey, you know, we have an open position and want to have you come in for an interview. Uh, so I got back from San Francisco, went in and uh, interviewed at a few wineries, took an entry level job and uh, then just started working my way up. And, th and that was the right way for me. Uh, for sure. Uh, so um, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had to to go to Oregon State because I I didn't I couldn't see another way at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but once I was boots on the ground here, um, I kind of found my way to do it, and uh, that was just through hard work and uh, uh, hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where was that first experience then? Well, I'm at Valley Vineyards. Um, and uh, Joe Dobbs hired me, uh, great friend to this day, and um, just a, a man that I've learned a lot from over the years and uh, admire greatly. Um, appreciate the opportunity and, and more importantly, uh, admire him greatly. Mm -hmm. um, so I started off just in the cellar there. Uh, I think it was probably making eight bucks an hour or something like that. Um, but was a pig in mud, you know, just happy <laughs> as can be. And went from just being a, you know, an entry level seller hand, seller rat, dragging hoses, uh, moving pumps around, um, to running the bottling line, and then from running the bottling line to becoming the seller master. And uh, then during harvest, uh, uh, helping to run the the night shift um, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. and you know we went seven days a week for a couple months and most every week well every week was over 100 hours a week and um, during harvest and I just loved it I just mm -hmm. absolutely loved it uh, I mean I, I there's vineyards that came across the crush pad there um, that. I still can remember, you know, the specifics of flavors, aromas, fermentations, uh, vineyards that I now still enjoy drinking the wines from. So, you know, at that time, Willamette Valley Vineyards was the largest winery in Oregon. And I don't know how many varietals came through those doors, but it was certainly over 20. 
uh, between the Southern Oregon brands and, and the Willamette Valley brand. So just a ton of fun. I mean, mm -hmm. definitely that continuum of kind of being a kid in the candy store, both from, you know, varietals and uh, methodologies and equipment and just kind of everything. Mm -hmm. It was fast paced and it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about loving the work, and obviously it's 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 a unique work that you're doing that not yeah. every, not everyone would love. So, do you remember what it was that, that appealed to you about the actual work itself? Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it's kind of the same today. Um, I mean, the perfect the perfect day for me is one that uh, involves a degree of of physical manual labor. Uh, I enjoy that type of uh, challenge mm -hmm. and. Um, Exercising the mind and, and the body when when you're out there um, doing difficult things on a physical level. I just I think that's paramount to the human experience. Um, but then the the cerebral component too of um, whether you're in the in the vineyard and you know watching Verizon happen basically right now, um, or in the winery and and watching this evolution of throughout the fermentation process. Uh, it, you know, it's it's the combination of art and science and physical labor and um, just everything mm -hmm. uh, that surrounds it. I mean, look, if I'm incredibly lucky and I, and I do this for 40 years, turn this into a 40-year career, uh, means I, I'm fortunate enough to make wine 40 times in my life, that's it. So, um, you know, every vintage has its own cadence and stories and, and opportunities and um, trying to solve that riddle each year. Just be a part of the riddle, perhaps, is a better way of saying it. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a ton of fun. I, re I, re I really enjoy it. Did you have much experience with wine from Oregon before coming here? I had three bottles that I know of, of Oregon wine. Um, so in the wine shop, there was Adelsheim uh, and Benton Lane. And I don't recall uh, what the third one was. Um, and I, I certainly tried both of those. And both of them ended up having really interesting serendipitous moments. Um, in the case of, uh, of Adelsheim, um, I, uh, after my tenure at, at Willamette Valley Vineyards, um, I'd mentioned kind of the progression there. Uh, I left there as cellar master and, and went to Lemelson, uh, where I was hired as the cellar master and, and worked my way up to be the assistant winemaker. And after Lemelson, um, I was hired as the uh, assistant winemaker for Shea Wine Cellars and worked my way up to be the winemaker there. Um, and that was 2004. Um, and at that time, Shea was just over a thousand cases. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't own a winery. Um, I mean, really, the only thing, the only things that Shea owned on the winery side were uh, the barrels and then the wine in them. And we rented space at Adelsheim to make our our wines. Um, and I, you know, there was definitely a few reflective moments. Uh, Harvest late nights, uh, kind of sitting in the building at Adelsheim and recalling, not that long ago, maybe five years ago, 
uh, trying my first bottle of Oregon Pinot. And I, you know, I don't remember if it was the Adelsheimer or the Benton Lane, uh, but then to be sitting in that facility as a, as a winemaker mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with that title, um, making the wines for Shea, it was like, you know, it's it pretty cool, it's neat, <laughs> you know? Uh, something that was just a dream um, was material and uh, uh, was living it, you know, it was, it was there in front of me. I was at Shea for, I guess, five years and then um, went down to become the director of winemaking and viticulture for Benton Lane after that. Uh, so again, it was one of those serendipitous moments of, uh, I guess, following the bottles that were on the shelf back in New York, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about that progression a little bit. Uh, sure. you, kind of, you mentioned sort of seller master to assistant winemaker to winemaker to. Tell me about the progression for you, and, and at what point? I mean, with with those jumps up, with the with the with the, with the moving up, did you feel ready for those when you took them? When you took assistant winemaker role and took a winemaker role, were you ready for those when you took them? I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose um, that's such a subjective question in terms of like whether or not whether or not you're ready, uh, whether or not you're ever like truly ready for something. Um, it's a tricky one. I mean, I, the only thing I can tell you really is that, um, you know, I've, I've never shied away from taking on more uh, and have always um, been kind of growth oriented and, and always wanted to push myself to challenge myself uh, to uh, push beyond my my comfort zone um, mm -hmm. you know whether that whether that be on the career side or uh, or athletically you know I've always I've always wanted to get beyond what I've I've known um, to expand just kind of my my boundaries and you know to me in that there's that's kind of the definition of personal growth like it's it's whatever's outside of the status quo in, in many ways. Uh, so, you know, it, it was certainly ambitious uh, when I took that position as uh, head winemaker at Shea. Um, it was on my 25th birthday that I was offered that position. Uh, and, you know, it was just a great opportunity provided to me by Dick and Deirdre Shea. And, um, you know, without their their confidence, uh, obviously it, it wouldn't have been possible. But it also proved to be wildly successful too. Um, I mean, we grew that from just over a thousand cases to seven thousand cases in five years, and um, built a winery for them. And I was employee one of one. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I turned on the lights every morning, and quite literally turned them off every night. Uh, they largely worked from their home offices and then mm -hmm. I worked from the winery. Mm -hmm. um, and it, just a, it was a great dynamic to be a part of uh, really awesome people mm -hmm. that uh, I learned a lot from. Uh, I'd put them in that category with, with Joe uh, Dobbs, uh, just a huge influence on me. Um, but, y you know, I think at Shea, the goal was really singular. It was it was to make um, the best wines in in Oregon, and whether or not we ever accomplished that goal could be debated. Uh, but 
We've certainly made wines that get into the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, we made a wine that made the Wine Spectator top 100 wines of the year. Uh, and it was number 15, and that was the highest an Oregon wine had ever been had ever been on that list. Um, I mean, I remember when we kind of got word through a photographer that they were coming out to take pictures because we had made that list. And, uh, Diksha, and Diksha and I were talking, we're like, man, what do you think, we're 99? Something like, like did we, you know, did we just make it here? And then when we saw 15, it's like, oh my God, what the heck? Um, you know, so it was boom times for Pinot. That was right on the heels of Sideways. Oregon was booming in general. Um, we were getting great scores in press. Uh, Nose kind of a rocket ship mm -hmm. for growth mm -hmm. uh, and a ton of fun. Um, but I remained employee 101. And, you know, when you get to the point where you're referring to your iPod as your coworker, it's probably time to to move on to something else. So the opportunity um, at Benton Lane arised, and, and in my mind's eye, the objective was to make the best value in Oregon Pinot Noir. Um, and you know whether or not we accomplished that goal uh, can be debated, but we made two wines there um, that made the top 100 wines of the world for the year, and that was that was about volume, price, score, mm -hmm. kind of that, that mm -hmm. matrix, and it put a check in all the boxes. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was a ton of fun. Um, Steve Gerard, just a, an amazing guy to work for, uh, had so much fun with him. Just a great, great guy. Uh, really enjoyed my, my time there. Mm -hmm. um, and after a stretch there, uh, was approached about Archery Summit, and um, which is just over my shoulder, ironically. We share a fence line with them uh, from my home vineyard here. Um, and the role there was general manager and, and head winemaker. And it, it kind of seemed to combine several chapters of, of wanting to make the best wines in Oregon, um, which was the objective at Shea, and then kind of being a part of something larger and leading a, a larger team like it was at, at Benton Lane. So it seemed it seemed to be kind of the roll up of um, my previous, I don't know, 12 years of, of work. Um, so I, I took that opportunity and spent about, I guess, six years, five, six years uh, there. And um, I think like a lot of young aspiring winemakers in Oregon. Uh, I had ample amount of, of desire and ambition to have my own endeavor at some point. Uh, long on ambition, short on capital. Uh, but um, was able to, to buy this parcel of land, this 11 acres in 2013. It was just an abandoned walnut orchard. Um, Cleared it by hand in 2014, planted half the vineyard in 15, planted the other half of the vineyard in 16, cobbled together all the used farming equipment in 17, pulled a small crop 18, bigger crop 19, built the winery in 2020, and then put in the, the patio hardscaping landscaping in 21. and. <clears throat> um, was, there was overlap, obviously, with, with my time at uh, Archery Summit, but was able to phase out of, um, 
of being a uh, an employee. Mm -hmm. Did some consulting for a little while mm -hmm. to bridge things, uh, but I'm now I'm I'm here 100% uh, of my time, and it's my sole focus. So you mentioned the you mentioned obviously Shea Benton Lane Archery Summit and Archery yeah. Summit kind of combining parts of the other two. Com compare and contrast for me the 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 material you're working with. I mean, obviously you're talking about Shea. That vineyard obviously is, is, is legendary in its own right. Talk about warning that space and, and then going off and working with different guys. Like, what, what, what were the differences between those three spots and what were the biggest similarities for you? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's been interesting. I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with, um, you know, some of the most pedigreed uh, estate vineyards in, in Oregon between Shea and Archery Summit. And, uh, but at Shea and Benton Lane and Archery Summit, I was also always working with just the estate mm -hmm. vineyards. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2009, uh, I started a, a brand. Uh, it wasn't a brick and mortar winery or vineyard the way this is, it was just a brand uh, called Ebony, Ebony Wines. And um, that was my opportunity to really explore uh, other varietals, regions, um, I mean, any direction I wanted to go. And I ended up setting a limit on myself of, uh, I'm willing to look at and work with any vineyard that I can get to in a day and get home that night. So turns out you can do that with Walla Walla, it's a push. Um, but I was buying Syrah from Walla Walla from a few places, Roussan, Marisan, Viognier, Syrah from Red Mountain, Riesling, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, from various AVAs in the Willamette Valley and just getting a chance to cast a line out in any direction um, as long as I could reel it back in by the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> and I loved it, you know, it was so much fun. Um, and in that process, uh, really started to find out what what areas resonated with me, not just what's the best block from this particular estate vineyard that we already own, but what, what really, if, you can, if it's a white canvas, a blank canvas, and you can go in any direction you wanna go, where do you wanna go? Uh, and I, I, I think it got up to, maybe it was about three or 4,000 cases we were making, something like that. Um, but there was this three barrels of Chardonnay uh, tucked away in the corner um, and I just kept going back to him and kept going back to him and kept going back to him and that was really just resonating with me and anytime I had a, a customer come in I was like you got to try this you got to try this but you know on a percentage basis I really should have been trying to sell the other stuff but it's like this is I really like this is just phenomenal um, so I just becoming more and more interested in, in Chardonnay. And um, so I, I ended up deciding that I, I wanted to try and double up and work a harvest in Burgundy uh, while also maintaining my duties here, which meant Burgundy had to come early and Oregon had to be somewhat late. Um, so in 2012, I raced across the pond and uh, Helped out with the white burgundy harvest in Pouligny Montrachet for a few weeks, and then uh, raced back and got harvest going here. Um, and you know, this the Chardonnay thing was just continuing to germinate mm -hmm. uh, or fester. <laughs> uh, it, 
in my desire to want to explore it more. Um, so, you know, it was, it was phenomenal to be able to work with those estate vineyards from, from Shea and Archery Summit and kind of figure out how best to perfect uh, the winemaking from, and farming from each of those individual vineyards and blocks and have that continuum. Mm -hmm. But si simultaneously, you know, congruently, I was, I was also throwing out lines in other directions to just see like, you, you know, if outside of that, uh, just trying to figure out the next 2% or 5% of incremental improvement on those individual vineyards, uh, what is it that, that really I'm most interested in uh, for me? Mm -hmm. And um, Chardonnay kept coming up. Pinot's still there. Chardonnay kept coming up. Um, and ultimately decided the Dundee Hills is, is where I wanted to be. Was very fortunate to buy this parcel and and uh, planted half of it to Chardonnay and half mm -hmm. of it to Pinot. Yeah. So you mentioned obviously three three estate vineyards. Tell me about how long did it take you to get to know a vineyard, and and what did you take away from those vineyard experiences when you were planting this? What did you have in your mind's eye for what this would be? Yeah, um, you know I think every year. Uh, you get to know a vineyard a, a bit better. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a hackneyed expression around here, but I, I seem to be always saying, you know, just boots and eyes, boots and eyes. When somebody asks me a question about something in the vineyard, it's like, let's, let's get out and walk it and let's look at it. Um, so I'm a big proponent of that, uh, just putting boots and eyes on the ground and um, spending time uh, when you're out there doing it rather than sitting back and, and thinking about things conceptually let's get out there and, and live it and do it um, so uh, you know I think you're always learning more about more about vineyards um, one of the things that that seems to be a part of vineyards in Oregon is that um, people are, are pretty pretty wed to their vineyards uh, even if something's not great uh, we'll continue to do it or just try to figure out how to make it great um, but you know I, I'm not sure whether or not as an industry we should be spending any time doing anything that isn't great and if it's not you already know that um, I think you should cut ties and rip out a vineyard uh, and replant and uh, try and figure it out um, and if it doesn't work you know, rip it out and replant it again and if, if look it's not to say that every parcel should be planted either uh, you know at Archery Summit we ripped out uh, sections of vineyard and, and replanted some and there's sections of vineyard that we replanted and excuse me ripped out and, and didn't replant and I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend replanting uh, and that's okay you know just, just because you can plant something doesn't mean you should and sadly I think um, over the course of the last 15 years uh, due to the relative affordability of, of land uh, in Oregon in comparison to other wine regions of the world there's been a lot of stuff that's been planted that simply shouldn't um, and it was done because one could afford to do it uh, so 
you know, it's a it's a hard message when you show up to someone's vineyard and let them know that you think they should rip half of it out, right? Um, it's a hard message when you go to the board of directors and say, I know you've done this for the past 20 years, but I think we should rip it out. You say, well, what do you, what do you think we should replant? I don't think we should replant anything. I understand how those are, are hard for people to hear, but um, one of the things that I've learned to answer part of your question is that uh, there isn't any any reason or need to continue to do something um, in farming a vineyard uh, that isn't going to be great. It's okay to, to rip it out and walk away. Um, so that was part of your question. I think the other part you're asking is, you know, what have I learned that I've done here? And um, I think the way a lot of vineyards have been planted, well, the way most every vineyard has been planted um, is with a clone. Uh, you know, it's the same genetic material that you get from the nursery that your neighbor down the street or across the road or in another state um, got from a nursery as well. It's the same genetic material. And I think a lot of our vineyards have become rather monolithic in uh, the selections or the clones rather that are being planted. And, um, you know, the lion's share of, of, of vineyard land in in the Willamette Valley is planted to Pinot Noir, and uh, it's largely planted to four different clones of Pinot Noir. And um, I worry that the ice cream shop has become a little too strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, um, because anybody that's gone past the salt and straw will see a line around the door, 365, right? Uh, so there's a lot of other possibilities outside of uh, strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, and so when I planted this, uh, I took just dozens and dozens of different selections, not clones, um, field blended them together and, uh, and, and just planted everything together. And um, I've really treated everything on this property in that polyculture mindset, um, whether it be the insectaries around the, the farm or uh, keeping deciduous trees for owls and hawks and raptors, um, just a multitude of things that we've done here. So, uh, you know, big takeaways in, in viticulture, I think. Um, one would be uh, it's okay to graft over, rip out vineyards. Uh, and those are probably conversations that more of us should be having. Um, and it's good to have diversity uh, amongst your vines the same as it is to have in all facets of life. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. So with the with with your with your vineyard for the first vineyard, yeah. the first time, uh, tell me about the you mentioned the field blend. Uh, tell me about the the, the the sort of the farming philosophy behind it and, and how that carries into the winemaking philosophy that you've developed over the years. Yeah. Um nowhere that I worked prior to having my own project here um, did we farm organically or biodynamically so I didn't I didn't have a experiential background in that an educational background but not a an experiential background um, my sons are are 10 and 8 years old um, 
and they're omnipresent out here with me and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I, I remember buying this land and being at the point where we needed to start clearing blackberries. And uh, this parcel hadn't been touched in over two decades. Uh, nothing had been done. It's an abandoned walnut orchard. Um, the blackberries went up and over the walnut trees. Uh, so, I mean, it was heaven for squirrels, like blackberry thicket and endless supply of walnuts. You know, they were very happy. But it was also great um, viticulturally because nobody had sprayed any herbicides or pesticides or fertilizers on the, on the property in decades. Um, so that was 2013, uh, had a newborn uh, at the time and a two-year-old at the time. And I remember getting to the point where we were gonna start clearing the blackberries and you know, you could come out and spray and kill the blackberries. Or you could come out and, and um, mulch them uh, with kind of like a rototiller uh, and then do a lot of hand labor uh, to clear them. And I, I remember thinking to myself like that I wanted the kids to be able to walk around, crawl around uh, out here any day of the year, pick up anything they wanted, put it in their mouth and just didn't, didn't even want to think about that type of stuff mm -hmm. uh, in terms of them being exposed to anything. And, and it was that was the pivot point of thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do this organically and never done that, but this is the path I'm going down. Um, so started started going down that path and learning about it. And um, the more I did it, the more I became interested in it. Um, that led to uh, biodynamics and uh, every inch of this property uh, since its inception has been USDA certified organic and then Demeter certified biodynamic. So, you know, even the walnuts that come off the trees here uh, are certified organic and, and, uh, and biodynamic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen it, um, I've just seen it so many, so many so many turns in the road over the course of uh, I guess eight years now of owning this place um, what what's that what what that's done for the place uh, so again like you know whether it's the insectaries here where there's praying mantis and honeybees and ladybugs um, we make about a hundred thousand pounds of biodynamic compost a year and uh, you know, any day of the year that you sink a shovel into that, you'll see at least five or six earthworms that come up on the shovel. Um, there's birds of prey out here. There's a barn owl that lives out here. Uh, and there's always birds chirping and, and flying around. And point being, there's, there's uh, just a lot of life and vitality and energy and um, you know, it's the polyculture of a farm versus the monoculture of a of a vineyard um, so we've planted six and a half of the 11 acres to vineyard and uh, we won't plant um, any more of the land for a couple of reasons one wanting to maintain the polyculture of uh, of the farm uh, but two when we when we mapped out um, the land here uh, the objective was purely to identify what the tenderloin of the property was, plant the tenderloin, and 
do not plant anywhere outside of that. Going back to our, mm-hmm. our earlier conversation, I just I don't I don't see any uh, merit in in um, in planting anything outside of the the A plus ground. So I, I understand that most anyone uh, and certainly every banker uh, would encourage. Uh, the remaining acres to to be planted, but you know, we're sitting under the shade of a 75-year-old walnut tree right now. There's dozens of those out here. Um, I enjoy always having kind of the other forces of life out here, uh, and at the end of the day, know that the only things that we're farming are are what are the tenderloin of, of this property. Yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty big shift going coming from a conventional farming background into biodynamics. Did that change your winemaking at all? Um, <clears throat> I think, I think, uh, you, you, you know, a lot of winemakers in their youth starting off um, probably can resonate with this where you, you feel like you can probably impose your will a bit upon the fruit and you'll make it what you want it to be. Uh, and so maybe that's 80% winemaking, 20%, you know, grape growing, something like that when you're first starting off. Um, but I think, uh, for a lot of winemakers and certainly myself, um, you know, the, the pendulum is kind of swung the other direction now where it's 90% farming and, and maybe 10%, you know, winemaking. So what we do in, in the winery is really just a continuum of, of what we've started in the field. Um, you know, everything is native yeast, native bacteria, um, coming in from, coming in from the field on the fruit. Um, it's really pretty non-interventionist on the, on the, uh, winery side. And then the wines go to bottle unfined and unfiltered. So it, you know, it's really about, um, great vineyard sites, uh, with, uh, the polyculture of a farm as well as the genetic diversity of field blends that we then uh, shepherd but not you know do any making just shepherd through the winery um, with ample amount of, of winemaking knowledge to know that nothing's going off the rails uh, but also enough experience to be hands-off and let things um, really really shine through and be themselves so you know the conversation here never becomes about this is pomard clone with 50% new wood from vineyard X. Uh, it's simply, this is white walnut Chardonnay and this is white walnut Pinot Noir. And this is the place where it comes from. It's, it's really about the place as opposed to, um, me or, uh, the methodology, uh, or anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about that shift from kind of imposing your will to sort of letting it be, do you have, is there, a, as you look back on your career as a winemaker, is there a time when you became sort of confident enough in yourself to just sort of let the wine be a bit more? Were you, were you able to step back a little bit from it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably, um, it's probably uh, aligns with this, this, this chapter of, of White Walnut now. Um, where, you know, with all due respect to everyone that 
that I ever worked with and for, uh, I don't really answer to anybody other than than consumers now. Uh, and so everything here is about quality and um, authenticity. There's not the, I don't worry about the fiduciary component here of having to be, uh, maintain a certain amount of, of gross margin or bottom line contribution the way um, one has to in a in a larger winery with uh, different layers to it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's quite liberating in that way. Uh, and, you know, going back to that earlier conversation about um, kind of it being a, uh, you know, blank canvas, it's like, if it's if it's anything and could be anything you could fathom, what would you want it to be? And um, so you know, I think it, it's it's the confluence of a lot of things. It's the confluence of um, a couple decades of having done it, uh, having done it in a variety of institutions, uh, whether it be family owned or or publicly owned. Uh, being at the point where you're finally doing it just for yourself. Uh, also the, you know, the lessons learned as being a father too, of uh, realizing that there's an inherent personality straight out of the womb to a child and your job is to, to kind of shepherd it along uh, and hopefully provide opportunity to optimize it. But uh, there's probably, there's probably all those things coming together. You took us through the timeline of the, of the property from sort of from sale to now. Um, was that the timeline you had laid out in your head when you bought it? Did you have kind of a, a, a plan for what this would be or how long it would take? I had none. <laughs> I had no uh, plan. I had no aspirations to have a winery here. Um, I had no investors. Uh, and as I look back on it, I have no idea how I did it all. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Uh, you know, I, 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 yeah, uh, I knew I was committed to it. I knew it's what I wanted to do. I knew it was where my heart and soul was. And, um, I just pursued it with reckless abandon and, um, there was never a five-year plan. There was never, uh, any of that stuff. It was just me pursuing what I was passionate about and you know that's the way it's always been like you know going back to college there was never an end game of how spending a semester at the University of the West Indies in Kingston was going to be influential in a career path that I was someday going to choose or what the meaning of um, you know studying in South Africa was going to have on so, you know a professional career it's just I, I knew that it it sounded exciting and uh, like a great opportunity and I was energetic about it um, and so I was gonna throw my arms around it and that, that's what it's been here I mean you know this is I look back on it and um, I have no idea how I came up with the money to pay for things but I knew anytime something came up, we would figure it out, and uh, that's what we've always done. And 
um, you know, after this last year too, um, or year and a half, I guess, uh, going through COVID, you know, we raised everybody's wages out here during that period. Uh, we raised everybody's, um, hours, uh, working out here and, um, I had no idea how we were going to make that all work, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like what I wanted to do and figured I'd just figure it out as we went. And that's what we've always done. With the, the winery specifically, you mentioned not, not part of an original ambition. When it came time to put a winery in here, tell me about what you wanted and, and, and what you were going for with the space. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was renting space uh, in another winery to, to make my wines. And I just started making wine and didn't, I wasn't worried about where it was going to go, who was going to buy it. Um, I was just making the wines that I wanted to drink and, um, but was making more than I would be able to drink. <laughs> Uh, so bottling was getting closer and I was like, all right, I gotta, I mean, I, I guess I gotta convert this to cash somehow. It's gonna have to go somewhere. Um, and just looking at, you know, the bifurcation that's continued to happen and has been happening, um, in the wine market, the domestic wine market where, uh, you know, either, either you're built for domestic wholesale and export from a, a pricing volume standpoint or uh, you're really built for direct-to-consumer uh, from a volume pricing standpoint. And uh, I, I think that chasm is growing even greater and greater uh, by the year, uh, years. And a lot, of, a lot of Oregon wineries try to be both, and I, I think it's a huge miss uh, because you end up being neither. Um, there's a few examples of people that have pulled it off and being both, but I, there's dozens and dozens of, of examples of people that have failed miserably in trying to be both. Um, so I knew from a volume pricing standpoint, you know, we were going to be direct to consumer and we, we had a mailing list, but, um, you know, there's a, a pretty beautiful spot here in my opinion. Uh, and so it seemed to me that the best, place to sell the wine was going to be right here uh, where we could connect people with the place uh, the vision the wines the view everything um, so I started realizing that I should probably put a tasting room on site well uh, we didn't have a well we didn't have power we didn't have roads we didn't have septic uh, we didn't have propane we didn't have a level spot like any of that stuff and so whether you're going to build something that is 200 square feet or 2,000 square feet, you still need all that stuff, um, which was a, a decent, decent sized number just in uh, site preparations to be able to, to build anything. Um, so I looked at what it would be to build a, a modest tasting room um, in addition to all that site prep. and realized that we would have to take out a loan to do that um, and the mortgage on doing that while then also paying the rent at another facility uh, to make the wines 
just was going to make me a little a little more uncomfortable than I wanted to be. So the question became, you know, how do you make something that is is hospitality and and production? And it seemed to me that everywhere that I'd ever worked had uh, these really large fermentation rooms, which are obviously mission critical uh, for two months of the year, but then sit empty for 10 months of the year. And conversely, there were small tasting rooms that are pretty mission critical 12 months of the year, um, but tended to be underbuilt. Um, so what I wanted to do was to build something that um, the tasting room and the fermentation room would be one and the same and really kind of an open kimono approach where people can come in, put their hands on the tanks, uh, be in the heart and soul of, of the winery, which look, is where everybody wants to be. You wanna be in the barrel room, you wanna be in the fermentation room. We've spent the money on all concrete tanks and wood tanks and terracotta amphora, um, which anytime somebody sees one of those, you know, you want to put your hands on it. Like, is this really concrete? <laughs> uh, so, you know, things just, just kind of followed what I thought was a logical progression of thought um, and vetted it with people that, uh, that I uh, really value. Uh, professionally, uh, both on a financial side and uh, on an accounting side, and uh, just from a variety of vantage points, and uh, people thought it was a good idea. Uh, so that's what we've done. We've 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 set up the fermentation room to to be the tasting room uh, in the off season, but <laughs> ninety nine point something percent of the time, people are sitting right out here under these trees and soaking in um, you know the polyculture of the place so it, I mean it's all it's all uh, proven to weave together rather seamlessly yeah so obviously you had you'd made you'd made and sold a lot of wines in, in your life before making and selling the first one here with your name on it yeah tell me about that process did it did, did, did it still affect you when you had your first kind of bottle of white walnut that was your thing from the start? Was it more of a challenge to sell? Was it more, were you more, I mean, was it, was it more difficult to put it out there for people to judge it? Or were you excited about that? You know, there's, there's been uh, all these little moments of, of um, glee, I guess, along the way, um, where somebody shows up that you've never met prior and um, mentions, you know, the wineries that they're visiting on the hill on any given day. and. Uh, at the end of the experience, they end up putting a couple cases of wine in, in the trunk of their car from your place. Uh, you know, moments like that have been tremendous. Or people that um, have worked for me prior, uh, or worked with and worked with me and for me at places prior, uh, have folded in to be a part of of this project here. I mean, those have been moments of glee. Or, Seeing my sons, you know, want to be involved in the project uh, have, have been moments of great reward. Um, and then, you know, getting getting uh, reviews from critics with scores come back, um, which have been great so far, uh, have, have been uh, moments of pause. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, I tend not to 
pause all that much. Uh, intend to just kind of keep going forward. So um, usually it's family or friends that uh, will say we're we're opening a bottle tonight. And we're pausing. <laughs> like okay, um, but to be perfect, you, you know, it's, it's it's kind of fun to talk about this. Um, I think the the biggest moment in this entire thing um, in terms of kind of reflection and and uh, you know feeling good about it um, we, we the boys and I really were grinding hard last year to build this in time for harvest so it was seven days a week and they were out here picking up nails uh, they were helping me put tar on the retaining wall um, countless trips to the lumber yard, you know, loading two by fours onto the pickup truck, going to the mill to pick out beams on weekends. Um, just, we just were, we just went so hard, uh, last year and that's how we spent COVID was building this. Um, but my mom was out here, uh, every week, uh, just to see the pro progress and take pictures and try not to be underfoot too much um which usually meant bringing cold gatorades for everybody and like all right, you need to drink something son and before you go back to work um but this past christmas she gave me a uh a thumb drive uh that she put together all the pictures and videos that she'd made through the construction process and i looked at it for the first time you know start to finish of what um that few months had been and and that I mean that brought me to tears like yeah I mean I I was there doing all that stuff but I didn't I never really paused to, I didn't have the luxury of, of pausing to to witness it it was just what I was living and doing um, so you know as of late in the last couple months we've been getting some 95 point scores and 94 point scores and we were in the Wine Spectator Insider a few weeks ago with our very first wine that we ever made. Like that felt good uh, against uh, you know some of the titans of of the Oregon industry. But to be perfectly honest, I think getting that thumb drive last Christmas and just seeing you know what the kids and I did during 2020 uh, that was probably the biggest moment in. Uh, in the progression of this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that was great. Yeah. So the, thank you, Mom. <laughs> the, pow the power of archives, that's that's what we do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's. I think sometimes when you sit down and you read a biography or, or watch a documentary on something, you can kind of be struck by, uh, by a life lived or, or an event as opposed to just kind of being piecemealed out when you get it all in volumetrically at once uh, sometimes you you appreciate the grandeur of things a bit more at least that's what happened to me uh, <laughs> with that thumb drive so yeah. but I've already let her know that she's going to have to update it on an annual basis because I'm not done <laughs> I'm not done <laughs> she's got I mean her. in a lot of ways honestly I feel like I'm just getting started like um, you know I'm 20 years into this but now doing it you know unshackled in any way shape or form and uh yeah I've, I've i was never burnt out on it but whatever this phase of things is it's even more energetic and um 
ample amount of energy to start with. Yeah. Yeah. So mom's got a future as a documentarian, is what you're saying. She, 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 yeah. I mean, I know what I'm getting for Christmas, I think. <laughs> Well, you've talked about 2020 a little bit and how you how you spent it. I, I'm curious in the in the sort of the initial aftermath of, of, of COVID last spring as it became a reality in our lives here. Tell me about sort of initial sort of personal and professional reaction to it. Yeah. And and what if any changes you had to make to, to get through the year last year? So so it was January of 2020 when I decided um, I wanted to build a winery and uh, put my business plan together. Uh, you know, it was the first time where there was kind of like a long-term strategic plan for this place. And um, ran it by a few banks. Uh, banks were like, great, you know, we'd like to be a part of this. So uh, chose a partner in that, um, a banking partner. Uh, and, you know, I sat on that for a little while, I was like, am I, am I really gonna do this? Um, and I think it was late February or so when I decided to hit the go button. Um, you know, and I, I sat on it for a few days, like, am I, am I gonna make this commitment? Am I gonna make this commitment? Am I gonna make this commitment? And uh, I remember talking to my dad and he's like, well, you sound, you sound you know, worried or stressed about it. I'm like, I'm not worried about it or stressed at all. I'm just pausing, you know, which I don't do frequently, but like pausing to really just try and make sure I'm making the right decision before I, I go. Um, and then decided to hit go. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, you know, COVID hit. And I remember, you know, the builder, the architect, the bank, family, Asking, you know, what are you going to do? Are you gonna, what are you going to do? Are you still going to go? It's like the decision to go is what was made in February. You know, everything about this is is long term, and uh, you know, my job as a small business owner is to figure it out. And uh, it was around that time when you know staff were worried in the in the farming operation and we gave everybody a raise and gave them more hours and just figured that was my job to figure it out. Um, but anytime that question has come up, the only, the only moment of wondering whether or not we were marching forward was, uh, in February before I decided to, to sign on to build the place and everything else, you know, same as like, a month ago when it was 115 degrees uh, you know we'll figure out what we need to do um, or a year ago when there were wildfires we'll figure out what we need to do I mean that that's my job as, as, as the owner is to figure it out um, but we're we're going forward yeah so 2020 was really head down to answer your question just head down grinding on this and uh, and carving this place out, which in the long run um, m may have proven to be the perfect time to do it for a variety of reasons. May have been the perfect time to do it, uh, both so that the kids and I had something to focus on when they were out of school and uh, we needed something to do, um, but then also financially too to, to 
to do it during that time, um, I think you could end up being uh, just fortuitous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You brought up the, you brought up the other part of twenty twenty as well, the, the fires last last harvest. Yeah. Uh, again, tell me about sort of reaction to that and, and what you had to do to, to kind of get through last harvest. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we we picked every grape, paid everybody in full, um, and uh, honored a hundred percent of our our contracts, and uh, that's what we'll always do in those situations. Um, yeah, again, that's my job to figure it out. <laughs> Uh, when others, you know, walked away and, and left people at the altar, uh, that blows my mind. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, adapt or die. Um, so our wines, we're, we're, we're Chardonnay focused first and foremost, uh, it makes up over half our production and, uh, those those grapes were picked pretty early on the 10th and the 11th of September. Fire started on the 7th. There was no smoke here at all at that point. This is a pretty early site um, in general. Uh, so we picked Pinot uh, the 20th and the 21st of September, and there wasn't really uh, any any impact uh, of the fires yet here. We could see just the wall. I mean, you can see the state cap state capital from here. Um, you could just see this wall of smoke and ash kind of moving its way further north. Um, but we got everything off uh, without uh, negative impact uh, from the fires. And, you know, I understand that's not everybody's reality. Uh, if you're further south, there's a high chance that you were in something uh, less ideal than conditionally. We're in, we're in a place less ideal than we were. Uh, certainly if you're over in Silverton or, or uh, East Salem, you know, proximity to where the fires were, you, you might not have had the options um, that we had here. And, uh, you know, that's rough. That's rough for small farms, uh, small companies. Uh, but, yeah, we managed to get through things um, in good shape. Yeah. And hopefully... Hopefully that's anomalous to 2020, and that isn't something that we have to contend with, you know, henceforth. But uh, I think it's something that people have prepared themselves for a little bit better now. Um, but certainly, the, you know, the climate is changing. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully it doesn't mean more fires. <laughs> So you brought up earlier that the, the time you got here, the 99-2000 era, was, it was a pretty exciting time and a, and a yeah. time kind of right, be, right before a lot of growth. So you've been here for that, that growth. So, so tell me what, what the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon are in your, in your 20 years here and, and where it kind of stands now as an industry in 2021. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe rewind the tape just a a little bit even before my arrival. So in the mid eighties, uh, you know, 25% of the planted acres in, in Oregon were Riesling, 25% were Chardonnay, um, Pinot Noir was there. There was a bunch of other esoteric stuff. Um, so, you know, there were a few legs on the stool, let's say, 
then late 90s um, Pinot Noir really took off uh, vineyards were grafted over to Pinot Noir vineyards were pulled out pulled out and Pinot was planted in their place and the industry really became a one-legged stool uh, all Pinot and there was ample uh, ample room in the market to absorb that um, but there's a lot of other stuff that got lost along the way or forgotten about perhaps along the way and now we're seeing a bit of a, of, uh, uh, a renaissance in people having interest in some of those other varietals again and, and some of them in, you know check back in 50 years but in some of them uh, I think you know the category will always remain pretty small mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's ever going to be mass appeal for Gruner Veltlinger, you know, um, some of the other smaller, more esoteric varietals that people are are, uh, planting. But in the case of things like Chardonnay, which is only 5% of the state's planted acres, we're certainly spending a hell of a lot more than 5% of our time talking about it. Uh, I I very easily see um, a a world where uh, there's more high-end Chardonnay than high-end Pinot Noir coming out of Oregon, and you know, you could you could make a pretty compelling argument that we're there right now um, on a scores basis. If you look at really what the Halo wines are that have ever been produced in the state, um, you know, there's Pinot Noir in that conversation, but there's Chardonnay in that conversation too, uh, and anybody can you know mine the data and see that for themselves um so you know i i think uh in our case we'll probably always be making more chardonnay than pinot noir and it's fair to say i bet the farm on it uh literally uh but you know you're surrounded by some of the most hallowed pinot noir ground um in the state too i mean it's a sea of Pinot Noir in every direction you go. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, both qualitatively, um, there's a lot of room for uh, Chardonnay to, to take further hold, um, and then the size of the category to to really expand as well. I mean, it's a, it's a varietal, obviously, that's planted all corners of the globe, but regions of the world where it's truly um, you know benchmark examples of the varietal you, you get down to a small handful pretty quickly and um, Dundee Hills uh, is certainly a place for for world-class Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for the long term in my opinion um, in terms of other you know changes like I was saying earlier um, you know that split in uh, kind of the market where you have wineries that are built for domestic wholesale and um, grocery stores and off-premise consumption um, versus wineries that are built for direct-to-consumer experience. Uh, it just seems like that bifurcation, in, in my estimation, is is uh, is growing more by the years. And, you know, there's some economists that argue that, that that wineries should be a bit more uh, vertical, having something from entry level all the way up to the to the 
triple digit uh, Halo wines and um, yeah, maybe they're right, maybe, maybe they're not, maybe it applies to other regions and doesn't apply here yet. Um, all I can tell you is that from what I've seen, when wineries try to be that value brand uh, that's going to be on every grocery store shelf, they, they tend not to be the wineries that are making, um, you know, the real benchmark examples of Oregon wine. And conversely, if, if you're putting all your tooling and viticultural experience and staffing in place to focus on the high end, you're probably not built to play the margin game on the low end. Uh, so who do you want to be? And um, maybe it's best to, to focus on one of those two. And uh, I think there's ample opportunity for some other varietals outside of, of Pinot Noir as well. So that partially answers the next question I'm going to ask, which is, of course, about the future of Oregon wine and, and where, it, where it goes from here. Uh, what do you see in the future for the industry? Uh, is there anything that you're looking forward to? Is there anything that you're afraid of in, in the future for Oregon wine? Yeah, um, you know, I look uh, broad strokes. Uh, I look back 30 years um, at the Oregon wine industry and I, I kind of see Walla Walla the way it is today. Um, I look forward 30 years uh, in the Oregon wine industry and I kind of see what Sonoma is today. And uh, I look forward 30 years from where Sonoma is today and I kind of see Napa. Uh, so I, I use that um, as kind of my um, broad stroke uh, projection of where we've been and where we're going. Um, so I see more wine tourism. Uh, I see more hospitality. Uh, I see more dining options. Um, I see this being more of a destination. And you know, the, the Willamette Valley as a whole is a is a rather large place. And some of it um, is easy to get to from Portland and then get back into Portland at night. Uh, certainly the Dundee Hills fits that niche. Um, where some parts further south might might be a little too far to do that. So uh, I'm really speaking about the Dundee area, uh, which I think um, in a variety of ways is really the epicenter of the Oregon wine industry. Certainly qualitatively, you know, you're surrounded by Domain Serene, Domain Duran, and Archery Summit, which uh, get into that conversation of who the benchmark producers are. And then I think from a hospitality side, um, you know, the Allison Inn is here, uh, there's Tina's, there's Jewelry, there's Joel Palmer House, there's Great Dining, and really Dundee is, is unspoiled, unsullied. Uh, so I see more, um, more growth there, and you know, maybe it's not quite on the scale of Healdsburg, but I could see something Healdsburg-esque uh, over the course of the next 30 years there. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on uh, the long-term um, possibilities here, and certainly the M&A activity from uh, companies in Europe, as well as Washington, as well as California, see the relative value here uh, in comparison to land prices and 
Napa or Sonoma or Burgundy or Champagne. Um, so, you know, there's going to continue to be a large infusion of out-of-state, out-of-country capital uh, into this particular portion of the valley. Um, and I think with it, uh, you know, all the uh, support industries that come with it, um, dining, lodging, um, boutiques, uh, you, you know, hopefully a good bakery soon, um, all, all that stuff, uh, and more wine tourism with it. So hopefully there's still small family domains such as, such as mine, um, but, you know, at least once a year, we all hear the stories of families that are that are passing the torch on to <clears throat> a larger company or conglomerate um, for a variety of reasons. But uh, you know, we intend to be here for for the long haul. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, it's time to talk about the future here, and yeah. I think we need some. I think we need your co-proprietors out here to talk to talk about that. So why don't you go get them, and we'll get set up for it real quick, and we'll do one more question around. Joined by the co-proprietors of White Walnut now, we have Asher. Archer. 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 I'm sorry, Archer. Yeah. I'm my fault. We have Archer. We have Charlie. Um, so tell me about your role in this. What, tell me about your last year and about building this place. Well, my last year was very fun. We built this, and it was really awesome to help out and uh, fun to pick up trash because he'd give me money if I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah and also helping around riding the ATV through the vineyard, picking grapes, it was awesome. Nice. Yeah. What do you enjoy about the, what do you enjoy about the work? Uh, that it's fun and I get to ride the ATV for most of the jobs and um, I'm with my dad and I'm with my brother, yeah. Charlie, I know you're not as excited to talk, but if you want, if you just said one thing you enjoyed about the last year being out here, uh, driving the forklift around. <laughs> driving the forklift around. <laughs> so He's uh, on his business cards. He is proprietor and the official forklift driver. Yep, it's quite good. <laughs> so, is this something you guys want to keep doing as you as you grow up? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, definitely. We found some owl pellets out here yesterday and a barn owl uh, feather, and yeah, we found all kinds of cool stuff out here over the years. Nice. Sometimes we'll camp out here and spend the night just roasting hot dogs on a fire, and yeah, good nice. spot. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, Chris, as you look ahead, then with, with these two in tow, what, what does the future look like here, and, and what's their role going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, Certainly during harvest um, last year, they, uh, as you can hear, they're fond of the ATV. Uh, so last year they had a vineyard map, um, a set of uh, clippers and a bunch of Ziploc bags and a Sharpie and they were in charge of all the vineyard sampling. So they'd go out and pull clusters from each block, uh, put them in the Ziploc bags, you know, label them from what block they came and bring them into the winery for analysis. And they also were uh, kind of the proverbial neck that uh, would turn the head and tell me where I needed to look. So frequently they'd come back and like, hey, I think you should take a look at block 15. Like it's really sweet out there. And Charlie in particular, uh, 
found a Chardonnay block that he really thought we should go take a look at. So we cruised over, looked at it, and I was like, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe we should think about picking this. So uh, certainly this harvest, that'll be their role as well. Um, we also do uh, a bunch of whole cluster uh, fermentations with Pinot Noir, so stems, skins, uh, seeds, everything in the tank, and use the old world technique of uh, foot stomping. Little feet do a great job at that. <laughs> so every year they're in tanks, uh, foot treading nice. during uh, fermentation. Charlie will for sure be on the forklift driving that this year. Um, but, you know, I think more than anything, uh, it's a place to to be free and to run feral and uh, do do as you please in a, a, a you know, a, an environment um, that will teach you something new every day. Uh, some of those days have ended in us dissecting owl pellets at home. Some days it's ended in us with stomach aches because we ate too many grapes. Other days it's been covered in blackberry juice. Uh, but all days tend to be uh, uh, smiles at the end of the day too. So uh, very fortunate in that regard to be out here, the three amigos farming this and making some wine and getting on the ATV quite a bit, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Archer, tell me about stomping grapes. Is that pretty fun? Yeah. Uh, we take our shoes off and then we jump into the tanks, stomp around. It's really awesome. And What's it feel like under your feet? Tickly and <laughs> juicy. Yeah, it's, it's very fun. Do you have a favorite wine out here? Um. I like um I like Warden Hill Road. The Chardonnay or the Pinot? Pinot. Yeah. What do you like about it? That it's citrus and it has a lot of flavors, mm. cherry and like blood orange. It's good. It's a good one. Definitely. Yeah. What do you think about the people coming and, and buying wine here? Do you enjoy interacting with them? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your business card says proprietor tour guide, so hopefully you enjoy it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here and should have covered? No, not that I can awesome. think of, yeah. Well, thank you, Chris and Archer and Charlie, for, for joining us here today. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.